Last week, we concluded the section on the value of wisdom in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Now, as I stated, wisdom is valuable to the wise son because of the protection that it affords. And even in the midst of stressful situations, the wise son can enjoy sweet sleep because his confidence is in the Lord. Now, interestingly enough, I do get assigned weekly tech trainings at my job. And one of the tech trainings had to do with mental well-being. And um, the interesting thing about it, there were, while there were a lot of things that were not helpful um, in, the, in the training that was provided, the training spoke a lot about the benefits of rest as well as the problems with a lack of rest. And so a lot of the same things that I said was mentioned in that training, and so I found it quite remarkable. Again, rest is important. And so especially on this day, the Lord's Day, especially with an extra hour of sleep, (laughs) I hope that you will rest. Well, moving on, this week we begin another section in the Proverbs. Now, this section has to do with how we ought to treat our neighbors. You know, the people who live next door to you can have a major impact on the place that you call home. Imagine for a moment your dream house, whatever that is. And then also imagine that the price is affordable. But then imagine that this house is located in the middle of a shady neighborhood with questionable establishments. All of a sudden, that dream house for you and your family no longer seems that appealing. You see, we typically don't look for the worst neighborhoods to live in. We typically don't ask the question, I wonder where crime and theft is the highest. I I think I'll go and live there, right? We typically don't ask that question. Instead, we typically look for neighborhoods that are safe, right? To put it frankly, it's not so much the neighborhood, but the neighbors who live in the neighborhood. To put it quite frankly, even more plainly, it's the people that we are concerned about. Now that's, of course, using the term neighbor in its most limiting sense. But as we will see from our text today, Jesus uses the term neighbor in its broadest sense. Now, I want to also let you know up front that today's Bible study will challenge us. It will 
stretch us and it will cause us to think in ways that might make us uncomfortable. Think like this. What if those same people that you don't want to live next to started coming to Grace Fellowship Church? Or what if we started back going to the prison ministry like we did prior to the pandemic and someone from the prison got out and they wanted to start coming to Grace? Ask yourself, would you welcome someone at Grace Fellowship Church who had a criminal background? Or would it depend upon the crime? You see, that's when the rubber hits the road. Even with security teams and policies and procedures in place, would Grace Fellowship Church still feel like home? Or, to continue the analogy, would you have to look for another house in a safer neighborhood? Again, as we will see today, these two verses are simple to understand, but hard to apply. And listen, <clears throat> even after hearing the word of the Lord in this morning's Bible study, you may still need to go to the Lord and cry out to him for a heart of compassion for the lost. <clears throat> and that's what I want to invite you all to do this evening with me at six o'clock when we gather for prayer. I want to invite you once more to join me and everybody else in crying out to God for hearts of compassion for the lost. Now, <clears throat> this morning, as we work our way through these two verses, we want to use the two headings as a guide. First, the command to do good, and then second, the neighbor to whom good is due. So again, the command to do good, and the neighbor to whom good is due. Again, Solomon writes, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. Solomon again says, do not hold back, keep back, or deny good to those whom it is due. In other words, it is the duty of the wise son to do good unto others. As we, as we read in Galatians 6.10, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. You see, <clears throat> the truth is, those who have experienced God's goodness are obligated to do good to others. And this obligation is not one of drudgery. 
No, on the other hand, it is one of joy. For how can we not show goodness when we ourselves are the recipients of God's goodness, kindness, and grace? It would be evil and hypocritical for us not to do so. And so, as wise sons, we are to do that which is good. Now, the word good here means good thing, benefit, prosperity, or happiness. And so, good encompasses many things, both temporal and eternal, as we will see. Now, also consider the object of goodness in Proverbs 3. The object of goodness is to those whom it is due. Now, the word due in Hebrew literally means owner or Lord. It is the same word used, for instance, in Exodus 21, verses 28 to 29, which states, If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall surely be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner, that's our word, of the ox shall go unpunished. If, however, an ox was previously in the habit of goring and its owner, that's our word again, has been warned, yet he does not confine it and, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner again, that's our word, also shall be put to, put to death. Again, as I stated, we find this word also translated as Lord, as in Isaiah 16, 8, which states, For the fields of Heshbon have withered, the vines of Sibma as well. The lords, that's our word, of the nations have trampled down its choice clusters, which reached as far as Jazar and wandered to the deserts. Its tendrils spread themselves out and pass over the sea. So we see that this word do here can relate to those who are in positions of authority over us. But as we will see, doing good also relates to those who are in positions of submission as well. <clears throat> and so, obviously, this has implications for our work. If you are a Christian who is an employer, you should seek to pay your employees a fair wage. And then on the other hand, as an employee, you should seek to provide your employer with a fair day's labor. This is the type of goodness that is owed one to another. Now, <clears throat> back in uh, 2021, seems so far away, as a result of the pandemic, there developed this trend known as quiet quitting. Say, what's quiet quitting? Well, quiet quitting is, quote, a term used to describe a situation 
where an employee disengages from their job and workplace responsibilities without overtly resigning or making their dissatisfaction known. It's a form of passive resistance or a subtle protest against workplace conditions, management, or the nature of the job itself. Now, as Christians, it should never be said of us that we are quiet quitters at the workplace. On the contrary, we want to do an excellent job whilst we are on the clock. To put it plainly, we want to work as if God is our employer. And on the other side of it, you want to treat your employees as if God was your employee. Again, we see that there is responsibility of both those in positions of authority as well as those in positions of submission to do good one to another. Now, no place is this seen more clearly than in the relationship of the master and the slave. In Ephesians 6, 5 to 9, we read, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. And so going back to Proverbs 3, we see that those to whom good is due can be those in either positions of authority or positions of submission as well. But there is another way that this word do is translated. The word do is also translated as creditor, as in Deuteronomy 15.2. Now, Deuteronomy 15.2 deals with the forgiveness of debt in the year of Jubilee. The text states, this is the manner of remission. Every creditor, that's our word, shall release what he has loaned to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor and his brother because the Lord's remission has been proclaimed. Now, this brings us to another category of individuals to whom good is due, and that is the creditor. Simply put, if you borrow, then you need to pay it back. This gets to the touchy subject 
of debt. We start thinking about questions like, should a Christian even acquire any type of debt? I say to you that though this is not the focus or the scope of this morning's Bible study, I do, however, want to acknowledge and make certain applicable observations. In the first place, the book of Proverbs has much to say about the topic of debt. And as you can expect, much of it is negative. Proverbs 22, 7, for instance, says, The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. This passage here recognizes a link between poverty, debt, and slavery. Now, it's important to know that under the Old Covenant, there were allowances and regulations for repaying debt through the practice of slavery. Leviticus 25, verses 47 to 50, for instance, states, Now, if the means of a stranger or of a sojourner with you becomes sufficient, and a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to him as to sell himself to a stranger who is sojourning with you, or to the descendants of a stranger's family, then he shall have redemption right after he has been sold. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle, or his uncle's son may redeem him, or one of his blood relatives from his family may redeem him, or if he prospers, he may redeem himself. He then, he then with his purchaser, shall calculate from the year when he sold himself to him up to the year of Jubilee. That's the seventh year according to Exodus 21.2. And the price of his sale shall correspond to the number of years. It is like the days of a hired man that he shall be with him. So we see that there were laws and regulations for both the creditor as well as the borrower under the Old Covenant. Again, both had an obligation to do good one to another. The creditor should not charge excessive interest, and the borrower should repay what he owes. Now, to be clear, I'm not advocating a lifestyle of debt any more than I would be advocating a lifestyle of slavery. Rather, I'm simply stating that these things were a reality for people under the Old Covenant, much like it is a reality for believers today as well. <clears throat> the main point this morning as it relates to Proverbs 3 is that if we find ourselves in debt, then we need to make sure that we do good to our creditors and pay back what it is that we owe. Now you may say, but Pastor Devon, how can I repay my debt? For if I had the money in the first place, then I wouldn't be in debt, right? That's a fair point. Now, with that being said, 
I want you to know that they are tried and true ways to get yourself out of debt. Right? There are some basic things that you could do, such as get on a budget, cut back spending, increase your income, perhaps sell some of your possessions. I think most of us would agree that we have far more stuff than we really need. This week alone, I read an an article from the LA Times going back to 2014. It states that the average American home has 300,000 things from paper clips to ironing boards. Now this same article also mentions that US children make up 3.7% of all of the children on the planet, but have 47% of all toys and children's books. That's a disproportionate number. But lest we think that it's just children, we also see that this extends to the older generation as well. Now, I spoke with... uh, brother the other day who told me about all the stuff that his parents had left behind after they died. And though he had given away a lot of it, he had sold a lot of it, he still spoke with a sense of burden as to how much stuff was still left over. Again, you don't want to be that person. You don't want to be that parent when you die. Another thing that you can do is learn a new skill or use an old skill in a new way as well. Sometimes we think that there is only one job that we can ever do when instead we should think of all of the skills that we have developed. I think about Joseph, for instance. It was the same skill that he used in the prison that he also used in the palace. The life of Joseph reminds me of Proverbs 22, 29, which states, Do you see a man skilled in his work? He shall stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Again, These are just a few suggestions in order to get money coming in. But more money coming in is not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to get out of debt so that we can have more money going out. You say, what do I mean? Well, going back to Proverbs 3, Solomon continues, Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it, when you have it with you. Now this second statement by Solomon widens the scope to whom good is due. Good is due not only to those whom we have a legal obligation but also to those whom we have a gospel obligation. As one commentator notes on the passage, 
if we have no legal debt to any, we have a gospel debt to all. Even the poor is bound by this universal law to his poorer neighbor. Everyone has a claim upon our love. Every opportunity of doing good is our call to do so. Again, simply put, good is also due to our neighbors. Uh, this leads us to the second point today, which is the neighbor to whom good is due. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10, <coughs> verses 25 to 37, a very familiar passage of scripture. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10. Um, <clears throat> beginning in verse 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will, repay, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Now, for the next few minutes, I wish to highlight a few points from this parable as it relates to Proverbs 3. In the first place, this parable was given in response to a question. The question again is, what shall I do to inherit eternal 
life. Now, <clears throat> the text tells us that this question was put forward in the form of a test to our Lord. It says, if the lawyer was attempting to gauge Christ's orthodoxy. And so Jesus answers the question with a question of his own. He says, what is written in the law? Now, the lawyer correctly answers by reciting Deuteronomy 6.5, which is love God, and Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor. Now, just as a side note here, Jesus isn't teaching salvation by works. For no one can love God whom God has not first loved. For as John 4.10 states, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Again, the wise son loves God because God first loved him and sent his only begotten son to die on his behalf. This is the gospel. And faith does not take away, but rather it establishes the moral law of God. For love is the fulfillment of the law. Again, Paul says in Romans 13, 8, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Again, this is Jesus' point, that we ought to love God and we ought to also love our neighbor. But again, seeking to justify himself, the lawyer puts forward the question, who is my neighbor? Or, as Proverbs 3 puts it, who is the neighbor to whom good is due? Is it those who just look like me? Sure, but it's also those who do not. It's my brothers, it's my sisters, it's my friends, and it's even my enemies. Again, in the parable, we find that a man is going from Jerusalem to Jericho. This man is most likely a Jew, and he is attacked by some robbers. He's stripped and beaten and left for dead. Now, those who we would expect to come to the aid of their fellow countrymen pass him by. Instead, it is a stranger and a Samaritan, nonetheless, that comes to the aid of this man. Now, 
Why is this man's ethnicity important to the story? Well, his ethnicity is important because at that time, much hostility existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. We read, for instance, the passage in John 4 9 regarding the woman at the well. Right, the woman at the well is a Samaritan and Jesus is a Jew. And John 4 9 says, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? And then it says, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Again, we see this little footnote at the end of the verse For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Again, even sources outside of the Bible reflect the relationship between Jews and Samaritans. The Jews had a collection of oral traditions called the Mishnah. In the Mishnah, it says, He that eats the bread of the Samaritans is like one who eats the flesh of swine. So then, eating with a Samaritan to a Jew was like feasting on a pig. Now the pig, though one of God's creations, was considered to be an unclean animal. It was therefore forbidden as food according to the law of Moses. So you see then what the Mishnah is saying. It is saying that one who eats with a Samaritan is like a lawbreaker and a sinner. So the fact that it was the Samaritan who came to the aid of the Jew would be astonishing. Today it would be like if a member of Hamas were, were to go and take care of a Jew who was injured in battle. That would be Remarkable. It would be remarkable because of the hatred that exists between these two groups. They are enemies. And yet, this is Christ's point. Jesus lays down a call for mercy and compassion in this parable. It is a challenge to do good to all neighbors, regardless of who they are. Hear the words of Solomon once more through the lens of this parable. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Again, brothers and sisters, we need to see our fellow man through the eyes of the Father who had mercy and compassion on us even while we were his enemies. There was nothing lovely in us. Nothing desirable in us. 
Instead, Christ came and rescued us even in our filth and frailty. Again, consider the moral debt that you yourself were in, completely bankrupt of any righteousness and completely in spiritual poverty. Do not forget that once you yourself was a slave of sin. Imagine for a moment if Christ came into the world, lived a perfect life, and died not as an atonement, but as an example. And then think about if Christ said, now look at my example. You go and do the same. There would be no hope. But Christ instead reaches down and lifts us up. And then afterwards, he says, like he said to the lawyer, go and do the same. Have mercy on your neighbor even as I have had mercy upon you. And so we don't just go and tell people to pull themselves up by their bootstraps like we did. Instead, we reach down and lift others up with the gospel. We should stand ready with the gospel and if we have the means, ready to supply the need of the moment. Think again about the admonition of 1 John 3.17. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Again, whoever has the world's goods, or as the Proverbs puts it, when it is in your power to do it, you are to do good, and you are to do so promptly. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it. Now, Hopefully, in everything that I've said so far today, I hope that you don't just hear me saying that we just need to give strangers our money. You see, doing good is bigger than just giving money. In fact, doing good might not even involve giving any money at all. Doing good does not always translate to money or material possessions. Actually, in some situations, just giving someone more money is the worst thing that you can do for that person. More money might just enable their sins, including the sin of laziness. No, brethren. 
Sometimes the good that is due instead may come in the form of time or service. Again, realize that the Samaritan in the parable did not give a single dime to the man who was attacked by robbers. But look at how much good instead he was able to accomplish. He bandaged his wounds. He placed him on, the anim- on his own animal. He took him to the inn. He took care of him at the inn. He paid for his expenses at the inn. And then when he was on his return journey, he had purpose to check in on him. Oh, that God would give us the wisdom and the discernment like the Samaritan, to recognize the need of the moment. That we would understand the good that is due to our neighbor at that time. As one commentator sums up the matter concerning the good that is due to our neighbors, he writes, The good here spoken of must be considered as being applicable to anything that is good, either counsel, comfort, reproof, or the good things of the present life. And by the lords or owners of it, we must understand those who have any kind of right to it, whether by the law of justice and equity or by the great and sovereign law of love which God had written on the hearts of men by nature and had frequently and solemnly enjoined in his word. So that this place not only commands the payment of just debts and the restitution of things taken from others by fraud or violence or of things committed to our trust, but... It obliges every man according to his ability and opportunity to pity and relieve such as are in real want or misery and to do all the good in his power, temporal or spiritual, to his fellow creatures. And so, in closing this morning, Having heard the word of the Lord today, I pray that God might grant us all the strength and the grace to now do what the word says. Amen. Let us go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your goodness and kindness towards us, all of the ways that you have provided for us. Lord, we recognize that the things that you given that you give to us is a is a stewardship, whether physical or spiritual, Lord. It all belongs to you. And we pray that we might imitate, we might be imitators of our Heavenly Father, that we might be imitators of our older brother, 
who had compassion on the lost, who had grace and mercy upon those who were yet dead in sin and trespasses, who came alongside men and women born of Adam and rescued them and cleaned them up and then empowered them to go and do the same. Oh, that we would have the same heart of compassion for the lost. That we would have mercy upon those who do not know the Father's love and grace. That we would be purposeful in the things that you have given to us. That you might give us wisdom, that we might know the need of the moment and seek to meet that need in the moment. Lord, we thank you for this great gospel that you have given to us. And we pray once more, Lord, for when we gather here this this evening, Lord, that we might be once more encouraged and exhorted by your word to have compassion for the lost, to seek and to save those who are yet still dead in trespasses and sin. Lord, I pray that you would help us, that you would give us strength, that you would give us grace, Lord, to do these things. And it's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.